0: didn't have to change your golf swing from what you have now, what if it were just simply uh, a chance, a a, a thing about reorienting? Let me start again. (laughs) What if it were just simply a case of reorienting how you think about your golf game? Right, Tim? It'd be much easier. Wouldn't wouldn't it be easier? It would be. Uh, It's a a show called Swing Thoughts, Episode 7. Is that right? Yep. Uh, I'm Humble Howard of the uh, Humble and Fred Show. A lifetime golf nerd, uh, along with uh, Tim O'Connor, who is uh, known to many, many people as a fine uh, golf uh, writer and columnist and reporter. And his website, listen to it, Tim, O'ConnorGolf.ca. So wow, there. He got it. All got right. It. Wow. Just relax. Yeah, he was bugging me. Tim was bugging me yesterday. He's like, you know, you haven't got my website right <laughs> once. And I'm like, okay. Sorry. You're a slow learner. I got That's right. I'm a slow, I'm a special needs uh, announcer. Um, I'm so excited to have our guest on today. I want to get to him in a second. But uh, first, for you people that were uh, looking to see us live at the golf show in Toronto, we, you know, honestly, it was a uh, was a, I know a huge disappointment. <laughs> huge. It was a huge disappointment to the people that came by the, um, where were we? We were somewhere near the hitting nets. and uh, Tea time auction. <laughs> it was, so we ended up, uh, we had to cancel because the demand was too, too great. It was over the top. Really? I, you
1: know, I felt physically threatened mm. that what was going on.
0: Seriously, at one point there was an old guy golf mosh pit. <laughs> and uh, I said to Tim, I said, I can't perform under these conditions. No, my, so, uh,
1: all my instincts just kicked in and went, no, That's better right.
0: better just to not... Do it, Tim wisely said. Let's abort this mission. Anyway, uh, welcome to another show. As always, we really appreciate the feedback, and we're getting quite a bit of it. Uh, ran into, I guess he's the director of marketing. I'm not really sure what he does. He's the what, Tim Green is the guy at Cleveland who um, I've known for a long time. How, you, how long have you known Tim Green? Because you used to write for uh, the magazine, right? Well, I edited the magazine.
1: Oh, excuse me, and I was actually the director of communications for club link. I was like the corporate fart catcher. So you would know what Tim Green's Yeah he's title the, he's the director of marketing or marketing Peabody Yeah or yeah. Whatever.
0: So he he used to be at Angus Glen. And yep. years ago, along with Kevin Thistle and a guy named Bane Arnold, I used to host uh, a bunch of stuff for them, including Golf of Palooza, which was a great idea. And it was the brainstorm of Tim and a bunch of great people. Anyways, I saw Timmy yesterday at the golf show. And he had some very nice things to say about our little uh, stupid golf podcast. It's not stupid. It's so stupid. Like, really, uh, uh, seriously, a bunch of grown men sitting around talking about golf in a room. I mean, I mean, it's, I know it's it not like most. It uh, sounds like most
1: golf clubs. What's exactly. About, no,
0: I, I take fun. it. back. It's and, not stupid. It's I'm just full of nonsense. Really good,
1: I'm getting some good feedback to uh, ran into a golf professional friend of mine. And and uh, he just he says, you're killing it. So which is a good thing. Right. Yeah. And uh, so
0: really good feedback. Um, I ran into Marty Chuck yesterday, the, oh, uh, yeah, yeah. the man behind Tour Striker. <laughs> and, uh, it's so funny because Timmy and I both have known Martin for a long time. And um, it's just weird for me. I, I, I said to him yesterday, so tell me, is, are you making money from, what's, what's making you more money, the golf schools or the Tour Striker? And he just kind of smiled and went, well, the Tour Striker does, it does well. It's doing all right. I'm sure it is. You know how many, you know how many they've sold? Uh, like it's in the hundreds and hundreds of thousands. Oh, yeah. Of little headed golf clubs, people love that stuff.
1: I know they love those. You know, you can just go on the internet
0: and in a weak moment.
1: Yeah, I'll order that.
0: One hundred percent. You know that scene in uh, Ten Cup where? Oh, <laughs> uh, is it? I can't remember if it's Renee Russo that Rene has Rus- all the g- gadgets on her. She at the start she does right. Yeah, I've owned all those gadgets. I'm yeah. not even kidding you. Like it, the first time I saw that movie, I'm like, Have they been in my basement? Oh yeah, the optical thing. I had with- the thing with the putting. From the, the thing went well, on the, the hat, maybe it's time to introduce our, uh, our guest. We <laughs> I mean, have a thing or two to say about all that. Uh, this uh, gentleman, his uh, resume is uh, quite extensive. Um, one of the things that's incredibly impressive about this gentleman as well is the fact that there's only a few people in Canada that have a, uh, a certain certification. So I want to make sure I got this right, because when Tim told me about Mike Martz, who's uh, hanging out with us today, I was like, what? And, you're, and the way you explained it was there's, there's a designation. What is it exactly? I suppose we could ask Tim, but, or I Mark. Mike. Mike. Yeah. Well, no, but I want to know, about what, what is the actual designation you have?
2: Well, there's uh, two levels of certification that are available now through the PGA and Golf Canada in terms of coaching. Um, and probably in the last four years, they've had to stream away from instructing to coaching, which for anybody that does either one of them knows that they're different thing i think it's sexier these days to be called a coach um
0: but well, yeah, because it's like no one wants to be. No one wants to say this is my life instructor. Yeah, <laughs> they, yeah. you don't want you. You're just a, my life coach or guru sounds so much cooler. Exactly. So you hold the. You're one of only a couple people that hold this certain designation. Yeah, I believe there's probably four, maybe five in the country right now,
2: and and there, the, there's a certification for new competitors and certification for developing competitors. Uh, we're hoping to have a certification for high performing players coming up shortly, but it's based on how many players you have ranked in the in the top 100 in the world. So, mm. Brooke Henderson is sort of our key to unlocking that, I believe. So, um, right now I have both of those certification levels. So, you go through a process of being trained and then there's a portfolio and on-site some stuff that happens and, and some videos and then you, get, you come to the, to the point where you get certified. So, um, last year in the spring, I was certified for CDC, which is Developing Competitors, which basically allows me... Gives me the ability to coach players on high elite levels, provincial, national, international level players. Olympics. Uh, yeah, cool. Yeah, so
0: Mike has been uh, Mike Martz has been a uh, Canadian golf professional for a very long time. Uh, works out of the Golf Performance Center at Whistlebear in Waterloo. Works with a lot of junior players. There's a um, an Olympic connection as well. Mike has a degree in kinesiology. And Mike has spent a lot of time, uh, spent a lot of time with the late Mo Norman, uh, conducting ball striking clinics around uh, the country called Long and Straight. Tim O'Connor, besides being a uh, wonderful father, husband, and guide guider of of men, uh, has written a great book on uh, Mo Norman. In fact, it's called the uh, Tim O'Connor Talks Nice to Mo Norman. What's the name of the book? (laughs) I don't have it in front of me. It's called "The Feeling of Greatness: The Mo Norman Story," and it's been updated. and I recommend it highly to all golf fans. So the two of you would be a couple of interesting characters when it comes to Mo Norman. The thing about Mo Norman is, in, in with golfers in Canada and around the world, is everyone has a Mo story. Canadian golfers, especially, but. If the number of people who claim yeah. to have seen or played or watched Mo Norman was actually true, it would equal the population of the planet. Yeah, pretty like much. Like the guy yeah. would have been meeting people a hundred a day, because I'm telling you, you get a bunch of guys together after a round. Everyone's, especially in Southern Ontario. Absolutely. People start going, "Oh yeah." Well, I, I, you know, you might say, "Oh, I saw Mo in a clinic once." Oh yeah. Well, I once did a road trip to Myrtle Beach with Mo. I, I hid out in the back of his trunk. <laughs> he didn't know I was there until he came and got a and a new, uh, whatever. So you two actually spent some time with Mo Norman. So let's start with you, Mike Martz. What can uh, an 18 handicapper learn from the, the golf swing and the golf philosophy of Mo Norman?
2: Well, I think, that, I think the thing that really troubled Mo, uh, the more you talked with him later on in his life, is that he really wasn't sure if he was wrong and everybody else was right, or he was right and everybody else was wrong. And all I know is that I watched him hit the ball dead straight for 21 years. And I would say that probably at 70 years old, he still hit the ball. And, you know, when he would go to the Canadian Open, the boys would get off the tee and give him an iron and stand away. And it was sacrilegious to hit balls beside him. So when the greatest players in the world... Would sit and watch him, and there's kind of a famous picture of him at the, uh, I believe it was the Skins game at the National. Yeah, I was, actually,
0: yeah of, I, was so I was actually, I was actually
2: hosting it. Oh,
0: you were there? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know what? I, I, I've told the story on the podcast, but I'll tell you, I'll tell you about it some other time. But yeah, all those guys, Faldo, uh, Couples, uh, Price, and uh, Crenshaw, Crenshaw, Crenshaw yeah. all were dismissed for the day. Yeah. Uh, I was hosting the clinic, and they, those guys I knew their schedule. They were they were done for the day, and all four of them came around. and There's a, the pictures of them looking around the the stands at Mo and Norman hit balls. Yeah, so when the best
2: players in the world would take time out, especially somebody like you know Faldo was back in the days being known as as the the, the supreme tactician, uh, if he would take time out and stop hitting balls and watch Mo hit balls, you know that he was in awe of the ability for him to control the golf ball. So for him to be able to do that and you know a variety of companies have tried to to teach his move and, and some things that he's done and you know i think he did a lot of things that were very biomechanically efficient i think he did a lot of things that were very easy on the body as well and as a result it's a swing that you know he said to me that he all the balls he always claimed that he hit through his his lifetime yeah. and that he never really suffered any sort of repetitive strain injury or you know back issues or hand issues and you know his hands were calloused like an old alligator but oh, yeah. um you know that's just a testament to the fact that he arrived at something that was very efficient and and i think would you know a lot of it would be applicable to most people's games if, if they wanted to pick and choose parts of it
0: but you watched as you said you watched him hit balls for 21 years tim's seen him hit a lot of balls you know i was lucky for a time when mark evershed was my teacher early on in my time in toronto i got to see mo a lot because he was very comfortable with mark as a personality yeah, yeah, and right. You know, it was unnerving for me, but Mo would hang around during my lessons. It was, you know, at first time, I couldn't even get the ball airborne. Yeah, I was so yeah. nervous, but I got to see him hit some balls. But as a guy that studied golf like you have, Mike, can you explain a little bit about what you saw? We'll talk a little bit of technical golf here. What did you see, and what, what was he doing that was so different that, that allowed the, the club to stay square or whatever it was? Well, he
2: basically swung it up and down the same line continually. And, you know, most people that would diagnose the swing today would would basically show an elbow plane, and the, the club would move straight up and down that that elbow plane time and time and time again. And, you know, whether it didn't look long enough or it didn't look upright enough or it looked awkward enough, but just the way that he set up and the way he moved, he just continually moved up and down the same line. And when you do that, the swing's completely circular, and it's just aiming the circle in the right place. And and that's, that was the amazing thing about watching him hit balls. And, uh, you know, a number of... of uh, broadcasters and people had asked me about, you know, is he really as good as, as he, everybody claims him to be. And I said, I'll sit around and I'll wait for him not to to hit. I'll wait for him to miss a shot where a lot of great players, you know, you go watch the PGA tour players and they hit great, great shots, but they hit some that aren't so great. And for him, you had to stand around all day to see him miss one. And it didn't happen very often. So it was just amazing the, the repeatability of and uh, sort of the the spirituality of the whole thing was it was amazing to watch
0: i want to talk to tim a little bit about the book you did with todd graves who was a huge mo disciple um and, and that book that you guys did the uh, single plane swing it was definitely based on the mo move versus the natural golf or, or are they the same thing
1: no, I think that the natural golf swing was more kind of a, of a hit. Jack Kikendall was the guy who came up with that, and he viewed it was kind of like using a hammer to, to, uh, to hit the ball. Todd, uh, his interpretation of Moe's swing, it was definitely a swing. But the key piece was, for Todd, was that what Moe did was that most players start with their arm, arms hanging below them, right? So the ball is below impact. The the hands and the arms are below the impact plane. Mo started with his hands up on the same plane. Right. So that was the key piece. Yeah, his, talk, so,
0: yeah, his arm started in the position of impact. Correct. Um, the way the club, if you've ever seen it in slow motion, that, that, that club at strike sort of bows droops, that way. Droops down. Droops down, um, which is only good if you're talking about golf clubs. So... Um, no, it's a joke, Tim. You say you don't want your don't want your own it. club to droop down? Because uh, we're all in our fifties. Let's be let's be fair. You know the club isn't as the club isn't isn't quite where it used to be at Impact. You're going down a rabbit it hole. Doesn't out. matter. Come on, Straddling the line. Remember, right there is no line. Remember, we're talking to a bunch of guys that thought the same thing. Yeah, I wouldn't want a droopy club at Impact. Anyway, back to you two. I guess what I'm trying to get to is this: why? Wouldn't everyone want to hit a ball like this? I think that a
1: lot of people would like to hit the ball like Mo, but they don't want to look like Mo. Mo looked very awkward at address, and most people are very—most guys are really self-conscious. Mm-hmm. They don't want to stand with their legs uh, straight and wide apart like that and to be, appear to be reaching out. Most guys want to, they're concerned how they're going to look, and at at Mo's address, he looked kind of awkward. But once that swing started, it was absolutely magnificent. Just uh,
0: No, I think you hit on it there. I think most guys, and I'm going to tell you a story in a second. Most guys just wouldn't want to go that far outside of the grid. But you look at the way Lee Trevino set up to the ball little bit unorthodox look at the way that couples swings a golf club a little more more unorthodox even ben hogan uh versus the guys of his day and the interesting thing all four of those guys are legendary in terms of their continual impact the fact that you know the the joke about couples is he just hits the face of the club all the time it may not always you know it's not always straight but it's definitely his impacts pretty consistent So why do you think the same thing as some guys wouldn't want to set up like that because they don't want to look dif- di- too unusual? Yeah, I believe that's probably the truth. They don't see anybody on TV doing that,
2: so right. they don't want to look that way, and it looks awkward. And, and you see that all the mannerisms that, especially a lot of the young kids we work with, that pick up from watching the players on TV. They let go with one. Everybody lets go with one hand now. Nobody ever holds on with two hands anymore. You've got a tiger right and you know one hand off the driver. So I, I believe it's probably, I mean, it's okay to wear plaid pants, I guess, but it's not okay to look awkward standing wearing them,
1: I guess. So, yeah one of the things that was really interesting so when mo mo really developed his swing about 18 19 years old and then he comes out and he's starting to play in invitationals and tournaments and people are seeing his swing and they're saying you're never going to be any good like that with that grip with that right hand under and reaching out like that and Mo's comment was oh i guess I'll, i'll never be any good uh let's see uh 33 uh was it 17 course records And, um, no, 17 hole-in-ones, 33 course records.
0: I guess he was pretty good. That's decent. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you guys knew him very well, you know, besides writing a book and besides, um, you know, Mike's involvement being around him in the the world of golf. Um, Was it his, whatever that spectrum of, you know, mental dysfunction is, is that what made him a great ball striker and also kept him from being you know earlier on maybe a, a more uh you know getting making it on the pga tour versus being a little bit shy around those guys
2: well i think just because of the fact that he liked to be alone i mean it's it's a lonely game if you're going to try to get good at it so i think that was that he he really didn't have a need for a whole lot of people <laughs> yeah. you know like he had uh four or five or say, so, like you say how many people would he have to see in the day to to verify all those stories well I mean, he had four or five people a day he would see and see them every day. and Including you. Yeah, and that would... So outside of that, I mean, he didn't really need a whole lot of other people. So for him to be that solitary stuff on the range... And like I said, I would watch him hit golf balls and you could look at his face and you could see that it was it was a spiritual thing for him. I mean, it was it was truly really the feeling of greatness. And that's what... He knew that he had something when he hit the ball. He always told me that no matter who he was doing a clinic for, he had something they wanted. So whether it was was Bill Gates, he always talked, the last, the clinic we did was for Microsoft, the last one he and I did together, and, you know, Bill Gates wants me, Bill Gates wants me, he always talked about, but he said, you know, so somebody could have all of that money and all that success, but they still wanted what he had. Sure. And he was the only one that had it. Um,
0: the winter of, I think, when he... The natural golf swing first came out. That was the kikendall K- Kickendoll Kickendoll yeah. thing, where he was basically somehow he got the copyright of Moe's whatever. And so I took an old pair. I don't think I've ever told you this. This is how ridiculous I am when it comes to golf. Um, <laughs> I took an old set of, of Titleists, and I took them to Golf Town, and I got them to build the grips up. And I spent an entire winter at the old uh, family golf where Cochran used to teach on Upper Middle Road. And, like a dome? No, no. The one outside, like Upper Middle Road and 4 oh, yeah. Drive. It's yeah, gone now. Yeah. And I spent the whole winter <clears throat> trying to learn to swing like that from that guy I, I sent away for the natural golf thing. And I found that, and it's funny because Evershed used to kid me, so you know, I was too self-conscious. But I hit the ball great like that. You know, this was before you did the book, the the single plane swing. I just had a feeling that this might be, and I was a good player. I was a scratch golfer at the time. And the two things, I one, I was too self-conscious to go to the national and hit a ball like that. Hmm. And the second thing I found was I found from, say, five or six iron down, it was incredible. But for my lower irons and my woods, I just couldn't get any power doing it.
2: A lot of low hooks and power. Uh, but with the longer
0: and, clubs, yeah. it, just, it just was like a, too much of a power loss. But I used to say to my buddies, if I ever had to hit a wedge for my life, I'd hit it like that. Yeah. If you had to hit the green from 120 yards in, that's how you would do
2: it. Yeah. And I thought it was the same stuff that Natural, they, they experienced as well. Because I remember at, at, this, at Mo's uh, visitation, the guys from Natural had come up. And they were all running the same problem. The fog was teach Kelly Murray was teaching at oh, that right. time. Yeah, yeah. So the fog showed up from Canadian Open wearing his bib. He was caddying for, mm. I forget who he was caddying for. but Yeah, I can't remember. But he showed up and, and it was the same thing. They were teaching. And every, nobody could hit a fairway wood decent. Right. And everybody's hitting low hook and four irons. And they all come up, Mike, what's going on with this move? Because everything's great with the high irons, but the low stuff, we can't make it work. And why is that? Well, I, I think that just the way that he released the golf club was different. And as you started to spread your hands apart, too. I think you have a real difficulty trying to create a lot of speed and leverage from that position in order to, to get the ball in the air. But it was—he—he uh, he always told me that he liked to feel that he hit the ball and rolled it up the heel to toe, almost like a saucer pass in hockey with his driver. Oh wow! Yeah. So that he never—he said he never wanted the toe to pass the heel. And again, a lot of this is—is is opinion and not fact, if you would. If you would videotape the swing, he I mean he felt a lot of things that most of us do that we don't actually probably do. But right. for him to repeat it day in and day out, he felt that he never really released the club that way. He rolled it up the face, and as a result, he could keep that ball from spinning and ever going to the left.
0: It's so funny you say that because one of Ever sheds things with me, and I, and I talked about this when we had Mark on. Mark was the you know Mark's another guy. <laughs> you know if you love golf and you want to get into the minutia of golf, Eversheds... You know, he'll he'll go down in history. You know, Mark's got Mark's great because he's got a thousand answers for one question. But
1: yeah. He's also not that far from from Mo uh, Mac O'Grady, one of the the great kind of
0: mysterious guys. Shed is a beauty. So well, so and Shed used to say that I, he'd say, "I want you to feel like you're gonna try that. You're trying to hook it with an open club face. You you won't." But he he said, I want you to feel like you're hitting draws, but the club face is open and impact. Because what that does is it stops you from ever hitting it left. You you don't, you mean the club, the toe does pass. Yeah. But it's that feeling. And who, where does, most guys who are trying to get players to learn how to draw the ball, the last thing they're going to tell you is to keep the club face open. Right. Right. But, you know, that's sort of the contrarian thinking of of a guy like Mo Norman. So back to my question, you know, you obviously seen him hit a lot of balls. You did a book about the single plane swing. What's your experience hitting a ball like that? You must have tried it a bunch of times. I moved tried very his-
2: similar, very similar. Um, like when I when I met him, I hit the ball really far, and. He, I know he didn't really respect the ability for me to keep it on the planet. So <laughs> I and, and for him, for anybody that ever says that Mo really taught them, I don't know if that's really. I mean, your teaching is watching and mirroring and so on and so forth. But there was never really any. We sat on the range and he said, I want you to try to do this or I want you to try to do that. Well, we just I just basically watched him. And I said to him very early on, I said, I don't really want anything from you, but I just want to know what you know when you die. <laughs> that was it. So, I mean, I watched him hit enough shots, and, and if I put my swing on video now, I move up and down the elbow plane the same way. so But do you set up like that, or is no, it just... No, I, I set up... The, the, the shaft is a little higher maybe than standard, but I move just up and down the same line, and I don't know if it's just from watching, you know, Cyber Vision, you know, when they had Guy Berger out with Cyber Vision after he shot 59, but, mm. you know, I just watched enough swings that that's the way I move, and I just hit it really straight.
1: I think that Moe's... That piece of, about Mo is starting to infiltrate into golf. You can look at people like Kuchar, Stricker. They've come pretty close to single-plane swing. But, of course, now you've got Bryson DeChambeau. Now, he swings on a single plane, I think, but he doesn't have that exaggerated address position. He's, he kind of looks a little bit more, he looks more upright, but he's not bent over like Mo. Right, and you see variations
2: of it, and, and usually the guys that find the ball most often are moving on similar lines, they're, unless they're they're really experienced at moving from shifting planes and, and going up and down. But
0: well, I, 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 when you say you move um, on a single, more singular plane, you can just give us a. I want to want to start talking about some of the mental things that you learn from Mo. But I want to talk about this technical thing. When you mean you swing on an elbow plane versus a. Uh, a shoulder plane. Right. Well, if you, if most people that will diagnose swings, if you, if you watch somebody's, they'll draw three lines on
2: a down-the-line view. So they'll have a, a line along the shaft. So the shaft plane? Shaft plane. And then they'll make another line sort of from ball right up through right elbow. Okay. And then they'll have another one ball right up through right where the right shoulder would be at the top of the backswing. So you basically would have kind of three lines like so as you look down, uh, down the line.
1: For our <laughs> listeners, where would, they, would they be able to see that on the internet somewhere? Oh, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah.
2: yeah. So what would they Google? Uh do you give, if you just one on single plane swings or, or, or okay. uh, good or golf plane?
1: You
0: know, yeah, go, I've, you, it's pretty simple. It. Yeah, if you go if you yeah. go plane of the swing, you'll get a thousand videos that basically yeah. show okay. this. Yeah, the reason I ask it because most people have a sense of that shaft playing is the it's the famous plane in the Ben Hogan right. five yeah. Uh, yeah. fingers of death or whatever yeah. that book was called. <laughs> um, <laughs> Six coins in the five. <laughs> That's right. Five easy pieces, whatever. Uh, so people are familiar with that plane, but I I'm, I just think that. That elbow plane is different for most people. Well, it is, and I think you don't really see it
2: in a lot of, a lot of videos from, from instruction. You'll see shaft planes, and, and you'll see sort of lead ar- a lead arm at the top of the backswing and, and connection there. But when you look at those, because that's really where the, all your money's made, if you, get in between, you stay in between those, those plane lines, and then you're not going to hit too many crooked shots, I mean, unless you've really done something odd with the face coming through impact. But, mm. uh, and that, that elbow plane is the one we talked about where you talked about the shaft, Drew, that That's the line that that would be on. So uh, the closer you make shit where the shaft plane is and the elbow plane, the closer those are together, which is what Mo did because he had his hands higher, mm-hmm. that right. he was able to move up and down those lines
0: easier because there really wasn't three planes. There was two. So he started, as you guys were saying, he started a little bit more in an impact. So his elbow is naturally a little bit more. You know, sort of, his right elbow would be straightened. Yeah, because hands versus, were higher. Yeah, hands were higher. Yeah, so he was able to bring it back on the shaft plane, but his elbow was actually closer to that right. plane. Okay. Right. So
1: how how does I just act, got that? So how does the average player? How does he re, he or she relate to that in terms of something they might be looking for their game? Like you said, less uh, you know volatility, if yes. you will. Yeah. Uh, well, it's very easy for it. I think the visual process is number one. So when you
2: use video. I like to use it more as, as you know, like like Fred Schumaker talks about more awareness. So you show you this is what, where we want to want the club to be moving, and if we have some control of our body, can we make that happen? So, um, for most people, especially if their if their trail arm is their dominant arm, so for a right-handed player, if the right hand was a dominant arm, I mean, it's very easy for them to get the club back into a kind of a throwing position. Where uh, right elbow is ahead of right hand in the backswing, and that puts you into a pretty good position. There, it's when that arm, that right arm, sort of leaves the side either too close or too high that they don't marry turning and lifting. So we have to, in order to get the club in the air, we have to turn and lift. So if you can marry those two, you're in business and you're up and down that plane.
0: Uh, I want to mention a couple other things about Mike's background, and then we'll start talking about what you guys and what we all can learn about the way that Mo went about not just practicing the game, because we've talked a lot of stuff about technical so far, but how he approached the way he played. In 1986, uh, our guest Mike Martz was, uh, I guess you were in the Nas- U.S. National Long Drive. Was it, were you a long drive guy in those days? Yeah, I did from probably 81 to 90, or 82 <laughs> to 90, yeah. And to give you some uh, perspective, the tour average today is uh, 288 yards. In 1986, it was 261 yards, and Mike uh, set a record for a long drive of 359 yards in 1986 using, I'm guessing, a uh, like a, an old pole and uh, like yeah, it, it was, was an old broomstick. It, yeah, it
2: was the original, <laughs> original tailor-made burner 7 degree. Yeah, I it was was about like, the size of a, f- oh, a I don't know, a hybrid now. That's right, something. a
0: broomstick and a coffee cup that yeah. he welded in his dad's garage.
2: Yeah, broomstick
0: and an orange. <laughs> that's right. A frozen a, a frozen orange and uh, but you look at the clubs, you know, I remember I think it was 80 or 81 I was living in Vancouver and i went to a driving range and they had the the tailor-made burner Yeah,
2: that was Th- the one
0: that was the one the the one that was like I don't even think it's the size of a Like it's it's unbelievable how we thought it was such a great, you know advancement And now it's like this tiny thing you couldn't get airborne. Yeah, it looks like what the driver eats now. <laughs> 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 that's right. No, <laughs> it looks like the insert inside yeah, the M one, yeah, pretty yeah, much. Yeah. yeah pretty so much, yeah. in 1986, technology, we're hitting it a long way, um, and that's when you started doing clinics with Mo. You would be the long drive guy, and he right. would be the straight guy, right? What was the Bob? You know, you're a pretty tall person. You're obviously very, you know, you're in good shape. But in 1986, I, what was what was the secret to you hitting it as long as you did? I you was know?
2: just fast. I was strong. I was fast. Um, I trained like a power lifter at that time, and I was just fast. I had a lot of speed, and, and I was a scratch player, so I could hit it on the face. So, um, And I think that's what Mo really liked because, I, I mean, I kind of joked that I hit it all over the place. I didn't really. And uh, so he always, like, he'd always, we'd go out and play, and he'd say, well, if I hit it where you hit it, this is what I would shoot. <clears throat> so, and he was always. He'd shoot 50. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so if I could just drop it where you would drive it. Oh, yeah. He said. What could I shoot? So, you know, we had a lot of fun that way. And I think he just kind of respected my ability to, because at that time he did some stuff with Bobby Wilson as well, that with links and, and, um, and, and kind of was involved with Mark Evershed at that time too. But so he was sort of a fan of, he was always sort of looking to hit it farther because everybody always said with his swing, he hit it short. Well, I know in probably 65 years old, he still hit it 280 yards. I mean, he didn't hit it short, especially with newer technology because he hit Mm -hmm. it right on the nose all the time. Dead center. So you know, you'd walk out and you'd say, "Oh, this old man." Where's it? He? And, and he's like twelve yards behind
0: you. You know, so he's in your regular golf game. I've always wondered with long drive guys. So when you were doing competition, were you using some kind of longer shafted? At that time, we more started, weight yeah, on the ha- on the head or something. Yeah, at that time they started. Um, Artie Selinger,
2: was, he, that runs the Long Drivers of America, he was the national champion kind of the year around there. So we had sort of a tour of guys that went around, and that's when they started to limit Wedgie Winchester at the time. You remember Wedgie? He did trick shots. He was like the world's best. But he used the driver when he won that he screwed together like a pool cue. Oh, right. Yeah. So I think he used it with 60 inches. Rocky Thompson did the same. Yeah, yeah, it was 60 inches. So, and the Killer B or whatever came yes, out at that time was long. Right. So okay. they limited it to about 48 inches or 47 inches at that time, which at that time was the full length of a shaft uncut, put in the head of a driver. Uh, other than that, there really wasn't any
0: limitations, but there wasn't much to work with. I mean, some of the guys were still hitting wooden woods. Mm-hmm. So what do you think? I, I'm, I'm going to leave this in a second, but if you were, if you could hit it 360, With 1986 technology what could a 1986 mike martz do you think do you ever ruminate over what you might have been able to hit it with like today's technology well i would say
2: probably what you're seeing today like 400 400 410 yeah Yeah, like i saw guys hit it 400 yards with wooden woods in the 80s so um you looked at 43 inch 43 and a half inch standard steel shafts with uh, i remember hitting a, a mcgregor metal wood that was 13 degrees loft at the, at the World Series of Golf, at the championship there, and I hit a 341 with that. So it was like, now you're seeing it. Because at that time, Davis Love was the longest, and I think he'd averaged 288 there in 87. Now what's,
0: I mean, what's tour average now? I don't even well, know. Two average, eight. Eight. we looked it up this oh, morning. Oh, it is 288 It's 288.1. It 260. 261. It in um you know what's interesting is the tour average has only increased twenty year twenty uh yards in, in thirty years. Right. But it's interesting is that the the upper end of guys right. there's a bunch more guys yeah. hitting at three fifteen, yeah. three eighteen, yeah. three fourteen. Everyone
1: yeah. thinks it's a lot of just the technology, but there's been guys with the advent of steel shafts and and the modern golf ball, there was guys who could hit three hundred yards. I think his name was Bear. Uh, he's a big man in Hogan's era. They George were, Bear, that's it. Yeah, he could hit it forever as well. Yeah. there's always yeah. been guys like didn't didn't Snead hit it forever? Yeah, and basically he hit a pull. He hit a he came over the top. He
2: hit a pull. Well, so All did it. Mo. Aimed right, swung left because the ball was so far forward, right?
1: Yeah, cool.
0: Yeah, because as that ever- club starts to bottom out and, and moves up, it closes the face. Right? That's another Evershed yeah. thing. You know, there's yeah. this great Evershed drill. Basically, you know, I know Mark picked up a lot of stuff from being around Mo. Oh, sure did. One of his drills with me was he would literally put my ball outside my left foot. With a 7-iron 8-iron wedge to get me to understand to swing it left yeah. and I couldn't I, I just it's the strangest thing when you do it You just hit it straight, right, but try and tell somebody that yeah. but again the idea being as the ball goes forward You better be doing something in his case aim right because you're gonna you're gonna pull something left um, So what about now uh, you're 30 years later? How far are you hitting it now? Oh nowhere. 280? No, oh, too bad. I
2: actually I only played five games last year, but like can you I hit can you
0: crank it up though? I mean no
2: no you, you don't have no, that. it Completely lost it. Really? Yeah. All right. I'm smoking mirrors. I don't know how I ever did it.
0: Well, listen, man, we did a lot of things uh, in, our, in, in, in the mid-80s. I still have no idea how I ended up on that beach I'm with alive. the twins. Right. I'm yeah. alive now. That's say. right. Night putting with the Dean's daughter. <laughs> I, was, I was on a beach in Vancouver with a couple of twins. I don't know how I got there. I, mean, I, just, I certainly couldn't drive it there now. Anyway, boys, let's talk about Mo Norman. And um, I want to talk about a couple things in this next section. What you guys observe in terms of the way he went about his business as a golfer. Um, and how that might translate to a, an average player listening, and then we can talk a little bit about the way Mike seen how people synthesize golf information. Let's start with Timmy, though. You were around him. You wrote about him. What what kind of as a mental performance coach? Like, what did you what did you see and observe in him, and how might might that be good for somebody?
1: A bunch of things. One was Mo made golf into a reaction sport. He reacted, in my judgment, to a target. He was always to a target. And when, in fact, he didn't have a target, he was a little bit off his game. The other thing was that he played so quickly. He didn't, he didn't. What happens to most golfers is they overthink. It's almost like they double clutch. They want to make sure they, they kind of remember what to do and everything. Mo just went in and hit the ball. I never saw anyone play any quicker. When you play quickly, you would just allow your natural abilities to come to the fore and and it just happens for you rather than you trying to guide it.
0: You, know, you mentioned the notes. I thought it's important to, to talk about is that he never took a practice swing. Never. Now... When you think about that, you think, well, yeah, I know, but he hit, he hit 500 million practice swings. But the idea, you see it now with Rory and even Spieth when they, they putt, they don't take a practice swing. Right. So what, what, do you think that's something good that the average guy who, you know, the joke I told him is, my, my buddies that have, like, high handicaps, they take nine practice swings. <laughs> but as I said, they're not taking practice swings. They're taking how do you, they're trying to remember how to make a golf swing swing. They're not practicing the swing that's a, that they're about to take. All right.
1: They've hit, most people have hit so many golf balls, and if you're a golfer, you basically know what to do, but we seem to think, we have to think our way through it, and we don't trust ourselves, whereas your body actually knows what to do. When you play quickly, you get out of your own way. You allow yourself just to, to just to go and do it, mm-hmm. and that, to me, was one of the greatest gifts I got from Mo, was just playing with him. <laughs> First off, it's like whenever you're the slower guy in a group, you're self conscious and you speed up, which is a great way to learn how to play briskly. But that's what I basically learned from Mo, and that you don't, I don't generally need a practice swing. Most, I don't think most good players do because you know how to do it. So let yourself do it because the key piece is around
0: getting out of your own way. You know, it's funny, Mike, and and what Tim just said is so true. Most of the good players that we all play with, you know, ourselves or other guys in low handicap, don't take a lot of, well, first of all, don't take a lot of time versus a lot of the higher handicap guys I hang with. <laughs> it seems like they take forever. But part of the thing is they're also trying to figure out what they're supposed to do. They know what to do. Whereas most of us will, you know, unless it's an unusual shot, we'll see what we need to hit to seven iron is whatever. And you'll hit it. Is that what you observed with Mo? Uh, yeah absolutely and, and like Tim said he would be aiming
2: at clouds and he'd be especially with his driver he'd aim at clouds and try to hit it that way and uh, you know the biggest thing that I found with him is that I remember playing with him one time and we, were, we used to play nine holes all the time and, and it was a par four at Conestoga's last hole and I hit, hit a drive and I <clears throat> excuse me I hold a nine iron for two and I said Modis did you see that and he said don't ever think it's anything more than a golf shot that's all he said and I thought wow So what'd you take from that? That's probably true. So, and that's where we usually run into problems is that you, you try to put too much emphasis on what it actually means and what does it really mean? I mean, it's just a shot, right? Yeah. I mean, whether it went in the hole or two feet to the right of it, it's just a shot. And I think that allows uh, most people to get away from some of that anger and the expectation that how great can they be and, and placing importance on what happens there. And, you know, I think that. A lot of what I do with that with the players that I work with, the young players, is I try to make them aware that golf is just what they do. It's not who they are. 100%.
0: Okay. So well, Tim that, said that, that, you know, whether you sank that second shot or it was over the green, it doesn't really matter in the great scheme of your life. Right, it's right. just another swing you took. Right. You're, you're still a good person, whether you put it into the junk or whether you hold it. Right. You're still Absolutely. still
2: a great
1: person. Absolutely.
2: And I think when you looked at sort of the, you know, nine eleven, what happened there, and then all of a sudden Ooh. all the golfers tried to put things into perspective. But they've forgotten again after that a little bit, right? Oh, sure.
1: Weren't you, weren't you leading a clinic with Mo during that? nine eleven?
2: No, no. I remember exactly where I was, but no. Oh, no.
1: okay. That's another story.
2: Um, well, but, that could have been one of the stories. But, yeah, but it's, yeah. it's,
0: yeah, it's a great, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, for, if you had a dollar for every clinic you did with Mo. Um, but it's, it's a great, you know, learning in, in that... It's hard, and, and and why is it that golf seems to be so uh, dear to us when it really is just a thing we do and, and we enjoy? We enjoy being around it. We enjoy learning about it. But it really is just another thing. As I was joking with, I think I was talking to you last week. No badminton player ever <laughs> is ever looking in the mirror of an yeah. elevator as yeah. he's going to his office looking at his badminton backhand yeah, yeah but i guarantee every golfer that's on the way to a meeting on the 30th floor of a bay street tower if there's a mirror and they're yeah, alone yeah. they're checking their grip yeah absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> like seriously that's why yeah. i mean that this is why we have this show it's because there because we do put so much importance yeah. on it
2: maybe it's the ultimate game of self-mastery i don't know like you oh 100%. you know you, you hit some good shots and you think wow i have some control of myself a little bit and yeah. you can't do it again so you know i think that's the big thing there's nowhere to hide. Right. You're out there and and whether especially when you start to play competitively and you, you put whether it's your club championship at your course. And I mean, how many guys you run into at your club championship and they've just played the worst round of their life? Most. Ninety percent of them. <laughs> yes. Nobody ever. What was your handicap? Your A flight. Oh, yeah, exactly. You know, Would so one or two. Yeah. And when you've got to post that score. Absolutely. I mean, it's there's a whole.
0: But the funny thing, thing is for, for people that have played a lot of tournaments, myself included, um, as I got older, you, you know, you can post a high number around, uh, say, the 50-plus crowd. And not I, maybe it's partly getting older, but it's less embarrassing because everyone know Everyone's been there. Yeah. I played a tournament last year with a really fine bunch of good players. And I did pretty well. And I was, went to congratulate this guy who won. He shot like 73 or 72. I said, hey, way to go. Congratulations. He goes, yeah, Howard. just seen me last year. I shot 90. Right. And I'm like, it's the same guy. Yeah. He he shot ninety last year, he won it this year, but I think as you get older you realize you kind of accept that. You're not as embarrassed shooting eighty seven in your club championship, mainly because we've all we've all had that score. Right. Absolutely. You know, we've all blown up in a qualifier. Whereas sort of earlier in your golf life you lose your mind because you think, Well that's you know, this is every tournament I'll ever play. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, it's part of the expectations that you have for yourself. When, when I was a young person, I remember uh, going to a golf writers' uh, tournament and I basically <clears throat> all winter I unknowingly
0: grooved a duck hook. <laughs> it ah.
1: falls into the gnat in the garage. Or, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I love
0: that phrase. Unknowingly grooved a duck hook. <laughs> Little so. did Tim unknow that in the in the deep dark night, what was a happening? duck hook. <laughs> so That's I go right. so to <laughs> my very first
1: golf Riders of association uh, clam bake in Myrtle Beach, and first round, uh, I was like an eleven handicap at the time in nineteen ninety you no know, eighty nine. I shoot. Something like 107. <laughs> and, and putted well. No. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was so embarrassed. Had a great day on the greens. <laughs> I was so embarrassed I didn't want to hand my card in. Yeah. yeah. Right. And when I finally handed my card in, I'm thinking, oh, it's going to be posted. I went into the bar. And here's the key piece. No one cared. Yeah. They did not care yeah. a lick. Yeah. They just, hey, Tim, how'd it go? Oh, not so great. Oh, great. Yeah. Can I get you back? Yeah, no, great. And hey, man, man, talk, talk, fun. No one cares. And I think as you get older... You, I started to disidentify with with score and my worth as a human being and how people would view me as a golfer.
2: Yeah. I don't think whether you played well or badly, anybody remembered in two weeks either way. So, one hundred percent. You
0: know, well, yeah, it's the, I, think I was several people told me that during my uh, during dark, my clubs in the pond. It's uh, what people era. say it. You no, know. the dark, no, no, what people the dark say. period. Nobody loves company. Uh, no, one hundred percent. But you know, but it's true. I mean, you, you know, unless you. Like I would come in, and I think my, it might be my father told me this. If you shoot your lowest round ever, people will be excited for you for a couple minutes, and a couple days later won't remember it. If you shoot your worst round ever, it's exactly the same. Yeah, true. I believe it's it. It's just while you're in the moment on a golf course. There's something that happens to us physically. Our, our brain is running a mile a minute. We, we can't seem to get out of our own way. Uh, one of the things that Tim likes to talk about is, you know, feeling, you you know, getting into your body and feeling your body. How do you feel over a certain shot and how that will inform the decisions you make? And we were kind of discussing this, and you believe that most people will get over a shot, and if you just listen to how your body's reacting to it, um, just to articulate a bit, little bit about that.
1: Well, it's uh, so. Here's a common example: uh, you're playing golf and you're in a cart, and so you grab your club and you go over into the rough, and you get it's car path only. Yeah, and you get yeah, exactly. <laughs> which is the worst, <laughs> which takes forever, and you set up over the over the ball, and you've got a seven iron, and as you settle over it, you go, oh, it just doesn't feel right. I should get my six iron, and you, go, you know I'll hit it anyways. And uh, so I've heard somebody call it an anyway. And you're, you're going to hit a bad shot. You're not going to be committed to it because you don't feel right intellectually. You don't feel right in your body. So use that as a cue to go, you know what? No, I got to redo this.
0: But whether you're playing cart path only or not, I think that happens. I mean, that's a sort of a dramatic example in terms of most guys don't want to hike back to the cart. But I think it happens to a lot of people. You get over a shot and something feels wrong, whether you intellectually or you visually say that the lie isn't what you thought it was or you just don't want to be self-conscious and go grab another club because the guys are waiting for you, whatever it is, you just know that's not the right shot. And I think that Tim's point is a good one now that I think of it an hour later, that if you really just listen to how you're feeling about it, how your body feels, I think that can tell us a lot about whether you're about to make a good shot or you know even have a chance at a good shot.
2: Absolutely. I agree, 100%. And, and you see it all the time in that situation where in uh, what Gladwell talked about, thin slicing, right? It's usually the, the first move you make is the the first decision is the best one? You see, you pull the club. I'll put it back in. Pull the club, and then you say I should hit the first one. Yeah, you know. So a lot of times that you know that thin slice, take that first decision and go. Um, but yeah, it's 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 a big issue. Can you feel? And I think it is. It's just so important to be able to feel what you're doing. And and it goes back to the old process of of I mean, does the mind control the body or the body control the mind? Which one is doing what? Right. So, you know, in that situation, you're thinking that you know along the lines of entrainment and those different theories is that. You know, your heart's going to control what you do. You bring the heart rate down, your mind quiets, and you're able to play the shot. So, I mean, it's just a different way of thinking. And I think the more that people would get more into, I uh, often say to players, you know, if it's not going well, well, the other guys are teeing up. Just get over and make some swings and try to recapture. What do you feel your good swing feels like? And then go ahead and approach it with that. And, then, and a lot of times, you know, you make some swings, and you go, oh, yeah, that's what it felt like. And then all of a sudden, you get on a little bit of a run again.
1: Reconnecting with feel is huge. Most players, like the, what I had a tendency is back in the day was if I started to hit it bad, I went, oh, there's something I'm doing wrong in my swing. So I would do like an inventory intellectually mm-hmm. through swing thoughts, if you will, to try and find the right one. And invariably, it would just be a spiral into bad golf. But when I, once I started just to connect to the feeling of a good swing and let go of this mental gymnastics and actually felt what's going on in my swing,
0: that's when things start to happen well mike makes a great point what is that is that a body thing or is that a mental thing is it your your mind going okay i i know something's wrong here i'm going to give myself a chance to just get back into my body how it feels to me another book i read years ago the idea that um most of us you know we're so caught up in the thing that we think about our golf game is this my golf swing's broken right And I need to fix it. Right. And most of us played, I played 45 years of golf with at some point in, in most, you know, the experience you'll think, is is there something wrong with my golf swing? (laughs) Am I doing something wrong all of a sudden when in actual fact, it can be any number of things that you just lose kind of feel for what you're doing. What about this, Tim, as a mental exercise for people? If you could just commit to a round of golf where you wouldn't hit a shot, that you weren't either ready to hit, confident about, or you wouldn't do that. I think most guys would find themselves maybe backing off a few more times, but also going with their first instinct, as you were saying, Mike. Right.
2: And I often uh, debrief with my players, and I have them do that. I have them go through and say, okay, how, uh, in terms of mental component, how much were you committed? What percentage of shots do you think today that you actually you know, went through a pre-shot routine and, and visualized and, and went ahead and made the strike? And, and how many didn't you? And it, it obviously becomes more difficult if you're kind of spiraling out of control a little bit mm-hmm. to calm the world down and and kind of and especially if you're kind of feel like you're slowing the play down a little bit too that way. But I think it's it's of huge importance to be able to have process. And what usually what I see goes wrong with players no matter whether they're professionals or, or beginners is that what they do is the swing they make is usually based on the pre the result of the previous shot. Exactly. So if they miss two to the right, this one's going left. So yeah. they, they don't have process. And, and again, if you don't go back to process, and you have to realize that your process has to be valid to go back to it. So that if you don't have a valid process, it's going to create something repeatable. Okay. How can you go back to it and and try to make things happen?
1: So for an average player, how would you describe what
0: process is? Let's talk about... An um, average player who doesn't have a good golf swing. Because like, right. I can tell you, guys listening to this might go, well, that's easy for you to say. Right. Exactly. You, can, you can go back to process because you hit it pretty good.
1: Yeah. So let's say you've, yeah. you've, you've hit a drive, you've come up, you've got like 160 in, elevated green. What's, we're talking about process. Right. What is the process you would?
2: Well, I would think as long as the player can make sure, first of all, that they, they get it set up in a manner where ball position alignment is at the target or at whatever their target happens to be based on their curvature. So if they can do that and they make sure that they're aimed in the correct place, and then if they maybe have one one physical thought, and usually I would say that I would like that maybe to be more related to sort of cadence rhythm rather than a technical thought, and just pull the trigger and go with that. So at least they know now that if they've hit it offline, it's part of the dynamic and not part of the fact that they haven't aimed properly.
1: So the process is, in your setup, Make sure that you're aligned properly. Maybe take care of your posture a little bit. Yep. Those fundamental yep. things. Because yep. if you don't have setup right, yep. that's like 90% yep. of it right there. Yep. And then commit to... More of a feeling you're talking about, right. rather than take the club back. Make sure I yeah. take the club back straight, right. as opposed to maybe I'm. Well, gonna, no, you're, you're not talking feel, about like a, a tip. They're
0: not. They're not going to. You, you don't want players to be thinking, okay, this is what we're working on. Right. Keeping my little left wrist flat at impact. But I, you know, one of the things you said there, Timmy, there's so much in that. Most most 18 handicap guys listening would 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 benefit so much from. Uh, a little bit better mental approach, and just some fundamentals. Because one of the things I see, even from decent players, I'm talking 8 to 12 to 13 handicaps, they just don't aim correctly. Absolutely. You know, and it's like the old pro at the the National, Joe Rice, used to say, if you can't aim, you can't play. And, And I would tell you, he would walk up and down that range all day and just look at guys, good players, going, nope, nope, no chance. What do you mean, no chance, Joe? Look where he's aimed. Right. And most guys have no idea how far right of the target that they're aiming. I'd say
2: 90% of right-handed players I work with aim, mis-aim to the right. Right. So they hit good shots to the right, and then they feel they're aimed at the target, so now they swing left. It, right. it,
0: feels, it feels
1: powerful to, to, to aim right. That's a chronic thing.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I, you know, I don't, we could discuss that. Uh, we could do a whole hour on why I think people aim incorrectly. They, the, fun, the thing for me has always been I think most people, feel their they think subconsciously they're aiming their body at the target yeah you see them putting the shaft across their hips or their shoulders and so where where are you trying to aim that well at the flag why then the club's (laughs) aimed parallel right yeah the the club's aimed at the t-box to the right of that that green yeah um so back to what we're talking about the mental side and just to remind everyone mike martz is with us he's a uh a long time uh Friend and, uh, you know, golfer, golfed a lot with Mo Norman, a very, very fine player himself. At one time, he used to hit it a long way, like a lot of old guys, and now can't hit it out of his shadow for some reason. We don't even know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know what happened. Do you ever hit one? The you got to hit you got you got to hit a, a one Y2K, or two a summer. I lost it. Why? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> the computers crashed and Mart's swing went away. Yep. Once you got you got to have a couple times a summer where you just air it out and go. There's the old Mike. Mike no, is no, back. No,
2: it's not even. I I just hit it. Mo always said, you know, you had a good day when you finished with the same ball and tea and that's what
0: I try to live by. Yeah, you know? yeah. um, but it's interesting that you guys were talking about you know what people can do, uh, and I always come back to. The fact is, most golfers listening don't. Have, if they knew what it would take to change their golf swing, one of the reasons we think you could change uh, your game by five shots is because a lot of the stuff that uh, deals with scoring has nothing to do with how you take it back. Has absolutely, nothing. Yeah, absolutely. The problem is, most guys spend so much time working on their golf swings, but it's only a fraction <laughs> of the time it would take to actually make a change. You know, talk a little bit about uh, as a teacher, what can you do with somebody? You know they have a job they've got a family they play golf a couple times a week if they're lucky and they say you know Mike I want to stop slicing it or I want to learn to do this do you have to sort of take them aside and go well you know you don't really have the time to do this so let's work on something you you maybe can make a change yeah I'll usually start with that you know try to get what's their objective why are they really seeking some (laughs) advice
2: and then say okay the reality of this is for, for me to tell you that we can fix this in an hour or in two hours would be, would be naive of them and be remiss of me to say that. So that it's going to take time to do that. So usually, you know, as a coach, I usually look at and say, okay, uh, I usually find two different things when players come to me. Either they're players that beat a lot of balls on the range and don't play, or they're players that play a lot and maybe don't practice so much. So if they like to beat balls on the range, they want to hit pretty looking shots. Right. If they want to play, they need functionality. So, it's kind of two different things that sometimes these people are seeking, and you have to kind of figure out which one is which so if it's more functionality, we start to look at okay let's do so, let's let's take a look at, at maybe your last five or six rounds and see you know where do we need help the most So if we got a little bit better in three or four different components, well, all of a sudden your five shots better without seemingly having to change your striking a lot. so mm. a lot of people you know we start to look at uh like with, even with the provincial players is a physical component. I mean, just with flexibility and, and maybe proper nutrition and hydration sometimes when you start to look at debrief and and if they start to blow up later in the rounds, a lot of times it's, fati- it's fatigue as well as, as poor hydration and nutrition. So we, we, I like to look at those things and then I like to look at proper practice procedures and different things that say, okay, if we don't really have the time to dedicate to hit all kinds of balls to create new habit, because we're not going to unlearn the old one, it's going to be there. We have to create a new one. What ways can we sort of look at and just chip away a little bit at? to maybe get at that goal of being three or four shots better.
0: If you're dealing with a 15 or 18 handicap, one of the things you said a few minutes ago that I don't think enough high-handicap golfers ever want to do is consider how you curve the ball. If you perennially hit a 20-yard... Fade. We'll call it. Yeah. If you hit a big fade, a peeler, a, a sweet baby fade that goes twenty-five <laughs> yards left to right. When I see again, my brothers do this. I don't even pick on them, but they're both avid golfers that shoot in the high eighties, mid nineties. Um, but I'm going to tell you, not only are they aimed incorrectly, they never aim to play for that move. Right. Like if you were a guy that cut the ball twenty-five yards, wouldn't you want to think, okay, why don't I aim over here on the left? But they don't. They aim their weird little thing to the right, then they cut it. So they almost hit block cuts. Right. So you do that five or six times around on a hole where it becomes a penalty. Well, if you could have just aimed it a little bit better, you don't have to do anything else. Right. You're going to shoot 86 versus 92. Right. Right. It's
1: playing the comfortable shot versus being aspirational. Most people still want to hit. They, they, they feel that their swing is broken. They're moving towards the move they think is correct. So they want to pull that off in a game.
0: That's a great point, aspirational.
1: Yeah, whereas when you're comfortable with your swing, you just let it go. Bruce Litsky was one of my greatest heroes. <laughs> he won something like 20 PGA Tour events. Big he, high fades. huh? He yeah. came over the top had a little fade. <clears throat> he never went to the range because that was his move, and he was
0: comfortable well, with it. Well, and he played it. He, played it, he, he, he The best thing about now, the way Lisky played is he never tried to hit a draw.
1: Yeah, well, he didn't have that shot, and he knew. And he just played so that he could go fishing, <laughs> yeah, yeah. re, uh, yeah. you know, uh, refurbish cars, and coach his kids playing baseball. Right. So anyway, so he didn't identify big time. That's in a whole other kettle of fish. But he just played that shot that he was comfortable with.
0: Um, in the last couple minutes here with Mike Martz, you know, what about people? You know, they might hear this, and they've been hearing us now for seven shows. Say that you know the secret to uh, this is to identify a couple of things. Why are you playing? Are you playing to have fun? And and if you are, then you know maybe you just accept that this is how you play. Uh, and again, I know everyone. Everyone can take the comma at the end of any of these sentences. Go. Well, it's easy for you to say because you can shoot even par. It doesn't matter. The fact is. I I definitely have a better idea why I play golf now than I did when I was in my 30s. So maybe that's one thing to identify. What is it you're trying to do? And if you're trying to lower your score, because for a lot of people, the ego-minded, we're all ego people. We identify a lower score with us being a better, you know, father.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, so I'm this. Right. If I shoot a handicap, what's your handicap? Oh, I'm this or that there is identification going 100%. on whether
0: i'm good or i'm bad how i'm perceived my point though is if you're per, if if you come to grips like a lot of us that we want to shoot lower numbers and if you're a 15 to 20 handicapped person if that's what you do then i've i would put to you mike Marts, that's a conversation that once you get that out of the way you go okay how what are you willing to do to shoot a lower number are you willing to hit hybrids on par fives you can't reach into when your friends are all trying to hit drivers as far as they can are you willing to hit a bit more club going into the green because you know miss long you know you have a better chance you know all that stuff and I I think a lot of people aren't really either a aware that that's uh, an option for them and if they were aware probably wouldn't do it yeah, I agree that they
2: they think that's a par four as a driver. You you know you whack it if it's twelve. You've got twelve par fours and some par fives. You hit driver twelve times, mm-hmm. and uh, you know and it's a lot of part. Of what coaching is is when you go on courses, you look at the the decisions made. Um, I coached at the World Junior Girls last year, Team Canada too, and and as a result, when you do that, you're allowed to go on the golf course and talk to the girls on the golf course, and you know it's surprising uh, the decisions a fourteen year old girl might make that might not be. Really appropriate for the golf for the team to score the best you know the best score. So and these are elite level players that shoot par. Mm-hmm. And I would go out and I say, okay, what do you what do you think? What we're going to do here? Well, I'm going to try to do this. And really? Well, you're in a fairway trap and you've got a hybrid and we've got to carry it 180 over the hazard to get to this little sliver of a fairway. Right. <laughs> we might want to rethink that a little bit. And oh, okay. And then they lay it out and and kind of the nice thing of that is you think at the end of the round you're there, well, you say, well, we kind of saved the team four or five shots today just with. You know better management on the golf course, and a lot of the management is terrible. Whether it's using the the the, the, wrong, the incorrect club in a situation, or whether it's. Um,
0: you know, not judging the wind properly, or
2: whatever the case is, It's not taking every everything it's into just, account. Well, what
0: you're saying is just it's decision making at the elite level. Can you imagine how horrible it is for the average 45 year old guy who's three beers into a round? Right. Yeah, at <laughs> least, and it's and
2: it's the fourth hole. And, and, <laughs>
0: That's right. It's Sunday morning at nine fifteen. And and I know I'm just saying,
2: I know some of these people. Absolutely. And, and you look at if even with club selection, if, if they say 150 yards, I don't know how many people. How far do you hit your five? Or your, your seven iron? Oh, 160. Yeah. I said, oh, okay. Well, I hit mine pretty good at like 148. So 160, all right, let's see
0: it. Well, That's what so, Tim said. It's aspirational. It's not The question, I, I love that question. How, you know, what do you think I should hit here? And I go, well, how far do you hit your 7-iron? They go, I hit 165. I said, no, not how far you've ever hit your 7-iron. Yeah, yeah.
2: Exactly. In two swings. <laughs> but they all base it on perfect strike. Right. right. And I'll say, okay, well, at your handicap level, how many perfect strikes out of 10 might you make? Well, I don't know. Two. Well, then maybe let's take a little more club and see what we can do that way. So, you know, I think a lot of it is if you ever sat and, and you and you watched say, your club championship and there was a par three and you sat behind, how many people actually ever hit it whole pass hole high or hole high? Right. A very small percentage. So everybody's basing that distance on perfect strike and not looking at sort of the, the dispersion of, yes, we always want to be better. Uh, you know bringing our cone in this way, but we have to be better that way as well and, and a lot of people
0: don't have that what's what you say idea. If you look at good players, and I've said this a thousand times good players miss it long or a whole high most higher handicap players, the reason they're short all the time is because just what we're saying. They're, they're thinking it's 155, they're a little bit downwind, they think that's a 7-iron, but really, it's probably an okay 6-iron that they're going to miss hit to the middle of the green. Sure. Perfect-heeled 6-iron. Exactly. <laughs> um, but that gets back to our, our premise, and, and one of the things we talk about here on Swing Thoughts is, w- if you were given this information, or if Tim was to caddy for you, me or Mike, would you? you'd be so surprised if you just... Took the clubs that we gave you in a, in a uh, fairway bunker over a hazard, or you know, we got you near a par five in two and on in three instead of chipping, sculling it over. And now you're making six and seven. You'd be surprised at just how simple these things are to implement, but hard, I think, because of what you always say. it's, it's we're always worried about what other think of what others would think of us yeah. in the activity of this thing we're supposed to be having fun at.
1: Well, if the decis- if you can make decisions from a place of being sort of neutral. And unfortunately people make decisions based on as Mike you were saying based on your last swing or what they're feeling like they're they're ticked off they got to make something happen and it's really about being just grounded maybe take a breath just and just go okay all right what's a good decision here yeah just let it let it come to you that way as opposed to I need to do this to make birdie to shoot 40 on the front or or to beat buddy in the Nassau it's
0: you make better decisions from a neutral place. So what would you say to somebody that's just hit, They, you know, it's early in the round, early, I don't care, it's the fourth, fifth hole, they're, they're going along okay, whatever that is, and they just hit a horrible shot. And what, it, what Mike said and what you just remarked on is, is, is one of the classic things in the game where, you know, the old thing about you don't want to follow a bad shot with a bad shot, but most, most of us have. So what's that process? Uh, you've just ripped one into the gunch, and now you're walking quickly to the, the shot. I know in a lot of people's minds, mine included, sometimes you think, okay, I need to do something now to make up for that.
1: Okay. So here's, here's a tip that I, I love for dealing with anger and just frustration. Take the golf ball and squeeze it in your hand, and just you could just feel the ball as the receptacle of all my anger. And am I going to let? And then it's a point of I'm going to squeeze it, squeeze it, squeeze it, and then I'm going to let it go, and I actually drop the golf ball, and the anger dissipates. It's a nice mind-body connection piece. No one knows you're doing it, but it's a beautiful.
0: And maybe way. not with the ball that's in play. You yeah. don't want to do
1: that. <laughs> just, just I don't know what the, I don't know what O'Connor's rules of golf yeah. are. Anyways, so that's one technique. That's just called. You have to be willing to release it. So so, but it starts with awareness. You go like. If you're walking down the ferry yelling at yourself and calling yourself stupid and and doing a goose walk down there, unless you take a moment to just kind of go, what's going on for me? What's go- Is this serving me to be angry? 100%. Or, or is this working against me? And, well, it's against you. But you have to become aware of it and go, okay, I need to change here. I need to do something. So you can do a physical thing like squeeze the golf ball, get into your breathing, walk slower, just and this is after a
0: horrible shot.
1: Yeah, and, and just to have to release it and let it go.
0: You know, a good player's uh, version of you know hitting one horribly is the, is, is this I thought of this. I'm sure it's happened to all of you guys on a par five where you're, it's a short par five, whatever that is for you, five ten, four ninety, five twenty. It's downwind and it's downhill, and you know you can hit the green in two. Here's what good players do: if you don't hit a very good drive. You're in that spot where it's not where you you know you're sort of go zone. It's like two twenty, two thirty, whatever it is, and you're two forty, two fifty. You're thinking, I I have to get over this green in two, and I don't say so, you know those are the ones with me where I'll go. I'll just I know I really shouldn't go for it, and probably one out of twelve times I could probably get the driver off the deck there. Yeah, but those are the ones where I said you just need to suck it up for a second. You're not angry. But you're making decisions based on a future thought of, I should be able to hit this in two, not really assessing what you've actually done. And I think that's more of a better players. Well, I am mean, guess happens to everyone, but that's... A-
2: no, absolutely. And I think you say, like, the, the point you made is that you feel if you hit a poor shot, you have to hit a better one to make up for. it. Right, And a lot of times that just leads to a spiral of not a lot of good things mm-hmm. happening. Um uh, but I, I think when you start to look at, as, as Tim alluded to as well, is you start to look at, we talked about sort of pre-shot routine and having a process there, but you also have to have the post-shot routine. And I often see that, and, and I'll tape players, I just take my iPad and I'll tape them, what they've done, and especially with young players, and I say, is this the way you want to portray yourself to people around and, you know, what you're doing, throw the club in the ground or whatever, cursing or whatever, yeah. so... You know, I I try the best I can to get them to look at kind of things non-dualistically and say that I mean that wasn't good or bad. It was just right or left. I mean it was just right. You know it wasn't good or bad. It was just I just hit it to the right. You know, start looking at things that way and and try to reshape the way you think and the way you talk to yourself. And I, I think it's it's a valid process because once you you make people aware of how, kind of how they talk to themselves and how they can reshape. Uh, for instance, the other last week I was working with a player and I said to him he was kind of struggling with his driver and I said I, I kind of pictured a hole that I knew he, he knew he could hit a shot when we were on the range hitting balls. And I said, okay, you got out of bounds on the left, you got a pond on the right, and it's a little dog lake to the right. And I said, what's your process? And he said, well, I'm going to hit it. I'm going to aim more to the right side of the fairway because if I miss it, the penalty is less than if I hit it out of bounds because I'll be able to drop it up by the pond instead of re-teeing. So I said, well, what about if we just thought about, I'm going to try to hit it up 10 yards left of the 100-yard one, the stake, and then we'll have the correct angle into the green. Well, yeah, we could
0: think that. <laughs> You know, so that's you catch really but his 1st spot. That's what a, that a, a lot of players can relate to that. You know, I always tell the story of playing with my buddies, like at the time, probably a 15, 16 handicap. And we'd get to a water hole, and I'd, I'd see him over by his back. I go, What are you doing? He goes, I'm changing to my water ball. Water ball, yeah. Because go, going uh, in. I, I, well, then I said, Don't even hit it. Then just throw it. Yeah. yeah <laughs> just yeah. throw it in the pond. Yeah. Your water ball. I said, Here's what you should do go get a brand new one. Save the ball and just go up and drop. Yeah, yeah. just drop it. But just go get a brand new one. And think about you know making a good swing here, um, but that's a great story about it. Even at, at the elite level, what are you thinking that's serving you, or, or as you said, not serving you?
1: Yeah. yeah, I people who listen to this podcast are probably getting tired of this piece, but it starts with intention. Why are you playing, really? And if you can, if you go out there with the intention that I'm just gonna have a, I'm gonna have a good time, maybe I'm gonna learn. If you start from a place of equanimity. When you get to those hard harder places on the golf course when you've made a shot, your level of agitation is not gonna be as high because you went in with the intention that I'm gonna have a good time or I'm gonna learn about myself, I'm gonna be a great partner today.
0: Right and what Mike said too, a shot's just a
1: shot. You don't get you're not as volatile right from the start. Another uh, another moism that, that he
2: always used to say to me was that uh, you know, say you'd have five holes left and you'd and be five under par. And, you know, a lot of players, they want to just, if I can par in from here, sure. yes, I'll yes. be five under get par. Defensive. And he said, you never get to the point where you think you have to, you want to. So I don't have to birdie the last five holes. I would like to birdie them or I want to birdie the last five holes. So, so it doesn't become, you know, that onus is I have to, I have to try harder. I have to do the, this. The I need to, to.
1: So this is a great place maybe to connect back with most stuff here because Mo said, <clears throat> most people play hope and fear, hope and fear. Yeah if we can break out of that and like mo would preach just acceptance there's um i'm missing it right now but there's a great Moism about acceptance just hit the ball it's just a ball you know i remember if you you just lose a ball it's just a ball
0: yeah you know there's a great thing that you talk about the ball just it didn't hit it bad you didn't hit it good it just went right or left and you know one of the things in one of carl's morris's books says basically there's only three things that can happen yep. you can only hit it you can only hit it right or left or straight. if you can accept that yeah uh, and he was talking about same with I think this was actually relating to putting, but the ball's either going to go in the hole or it's going to miss right or left if you're okay with that and f- sort of internally being fine, then you can kind of free yourself up to play the kind of golf that I think that you know I know there's a lot of things in life that I wish I'd have known. <laughs> in my 30s What I know now Because right. I had a lot of rounds And I think a lot of people Can relate to this I'm willing to tell you I had a lot of rounds Where I what was in a shitty place I, I was a good player That wasn't having Very much fun playing Unless I played to whatever Phantom level That I thought was Okay now you're fine Right You know you talked about Shooting 107 I mean I was a scratch player And people would come out To the national And you know I think I have to impress them mm-hmm. You know and if I didn't shoot Somewhere in the mid 70s I think I hadn't Done it when really for the most people I took that if you got the ball airborne they were impressed. Yeah.
2: Well you know what pressure is, it's doing the clinic with the world's greatest greatest striker. I always had to make sure I hit balls first.
0: <laughs> that's right. You gotta, <laughs> you gotta warm up. Yeah, oh, yeah,
2: And then let him go. Because if you and even if you did it the other way, because once you got him cranked up you'd never stop. Oh so right. I'd never get to hit any balls either. So I yeah. always hit balls first, but that's pressure when you you know, the people are gonna see the best that's ever hit it. And then you, you dub next to him. You know, that's
1: them, right. Topping him and hitting him all over the place. And Fred Shoemaker uh, tells a great story of being at a clinic, and Mo, Mo's hitting balls, hitting balls. And they went, oh, thank you very much, Mo. And that's great. And now, they hit some balls to you, Fred Shoemaker. Yeah, And Fred goes, oh,
2: my gosh. And everybody runs for the exit.
1: Right? Well, he's, he's going, to, how am I going to follow yeah, up that? absolutely. But, but the piece around Fred, I mean, Fred just, you know, we talked about alpha level of equanimity. Then there's Fred Shoemaker level. I mean, he's just... Talk about a grounded guy. He, and this connects to what we're talking about. He just went in and he would just do his best and make no judgment. When Mo, when when Fred hits a shot offline or not, he doesn't attach it with being good or bad. It's just a shot. Mm-hmm. When we start to attach values to things around a shot or to ourselves, that's when golf really becomes
0: a struggle. Yeah.
1: Everything does, yeah. and that's like. Um, that's what Mo will play. Just a shot. Just a shot.
0: Let's uh, start wrapping this up. Um, Mike Martz, your uh, wonderful guest. I really am, It's nice to have you come in. I, for some reason, thought you were going to be on the phone today. We'd love to have you come back. Uh, I think I'd find the place better next Yeah, exactly. Time. <laughs> it's funny how people just keep screwing up. 30th and 13th. Yeah. Anyway, um, the Alf that Tim was just referring to is a guy that's been on our show a couple times, Alf Calhill, who's one of the... Uh, He's a great, really fine player too Alf is funny He's one of those guys That has taught me a lot In terms of Some of the practice habits That he has You know He uh, saw me chipping I was out at Rattlesnake Last summer Early in the year And I was working on stuff You're Milton, Ontario, Canada and That's right <laughs> Okay, Tim um, Tim likes to have this Like we're pretending Who can put things more in context I used to be a CBC guy so um, yeah, Anyway like, you know, Painting a picture <laughs> So uh, that If you were a CBC guy Why'd you just say Alf Alright, Tim <laughs> Um, anyway, I was out there with him, and he he's one of those guys that really t- buys into the practice, giving yourself practice that's like playing golf. And he said, I mean, what are you doing? I said, I was just hitting chips, a bunch of balls going to a hole. And he said, let's play a game. Mm-hmm. And he started playing this game with me, where, and there was only like a playing a like buck a point. It's, it's kind of like curling. The point of the game is... I'd go there every Friday and do it with him and it was like there, you feel the same pressure you feel in the game of golf there wasn't there was something on the line it wasn't much but it was something and we were competing with each other but mostly I was replicating that feeling on the golf course and I, and I know that Timmy feels the same as I do it's almost like there's not enough of that in the way that it's taught and the way that it's practiced
2: oh absolutely you watch everybody practice they practice off a flat lie short grass hitting the same club over and over again and I know that Maybe maybe I you you might be able to figure it out, but golf is the only game I know where you don't practice on the field of play. Sure. Mm. The only one I know of. So you end up, I mean, if there's ever going to be a contest for hitting seven irons off a flat lie, there's going to be some great players, but everybody <laughs> loses it between the range and the, and the first tee somewhere because they're not playing the same game. So it's almost just like practicing figure skating and then going speed skating. I mean, it's, it's completely different. You, you get out wow. and you whack the first tee shot off and you're on a side hill lie. Uh, Bubba Watson at 18 yesterday at, uh, at Riviera hitting a 214 yard four iron off a lie with the ball three feet above his, above his feet. I mean, nobody ever practices those. So it's how do you really get out and and be competitive on the golf course? Because you're not prepared to hit the shots you need to do. And you're you're not bringing the same sort of intensity Uh, level, mm -hmm. which you're doing with the competition.
1: Well, another person we had on recently was Carl Morris. And Carl is a a European uh, uh, golf coach and he calls he says we need to get out on the golf course most more because we don't play on the range. We get some great range players, but what we need to master is the art of golf. Get on the golf course, hit different shots, manufacture things, give yourself funky lies. That's where golf is played and that's where we really learn the game.
0: No, oh, absolutely. Went to Carl's games and and I played it a couple summers ago. Somebody else taught it to me. Is par eighteen? Yeah, it's probably the greatest. And we've referenced it a couple times. If you want to go look it up, you want to talk. One takeaway today for sure is go and play that game. There's a little scorecard that goes with it, and it, and you can play it by yourself. But what it does is it gives you uh, a real sense of the pressure you feel around a green because you're trying to get the ball in the hole. Uh, you're trying to get it up and down the best you can. Um, so how does it work? Well, I'm just saying go Google it because I, we're, we're about to run out of time. But the <laughs> the fact is it's a great takeaway. It's a great game. You've heard of it. But what Tim just said about practicing on the golf course, like there's very few people that ever go and play nine holes by themselves and just put their ball in the worst plot, the worst spots they can. Yeah, absolutely. But all of that is to say that most people don't ever practice with an eye toward what it feels like to play. No, for sure.
2: And you know, the more that you can make your practice feel like playing, make your practice measurable so at least you know that there is a little bit of pressure there and, and then you can see as time goes on if you're getting better at a skill and if you're not you'd better retool because your process isn't because you certainly don't want to practice like crazy put all the time in and get worse. So you've got. First, you sure. said,
0: "What did you spend the the winter un, 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 unknowingly, <laughs> unknowingly <laughs> grooving a duck hook?" I know it's awesome. Uh, all right, kids, there you go. Has a lot of stuff today. Uh, O'Connor Golf is how you get a hold of Tim. Um, Mike, how do we get a hold of you? Mike Martz uh, is the uh, uh, he's a coach at uh, Golf Performance Center dot ca. And uh, do people, can you still get lessons? You still teach people? Absolutely. 12 months of the year. We,
2: we actually, we have a unique situation where we hit, we have a four-bay garage and we hit balls right out into the snow. So Oh, nice. Yeah. And what picks them up? Oh, we have just winter balls. So we've got about 250,000 winter ones that we hit and then we pick them in the spring. So last, last Sunday wasn't so nice at minus 24, but it's... Uh, Nice you know, we today. hit we hit him out so yeah tomorrow I'll be there with that's the, cool that is cool So you get to tomorrow.
0: see the ball flight yeah, absolutely yep. wow. yeah wow yeah it's funny um, I spent a lot of time last winter at uh, Glen Abbey sort of just doing drills into a net and then just recently I've started going out and hitting it into in, in the dome and there's just a big difference and even being able to see it for sixty or seventy yards right it um, it just feels different well listen don't spend all winter grooving a duck hook Look, yeah. <laughs> Uh, and uh, That's the best uh, advice you're going to hear on this show. Yeah. If you're in the garage and you miss the net, <laughs>
2: you know it's not going to be pretty when you get outside.
0: If, yeah. If you're if you get out after that, that is funny. I'm, I'm I'm sure a lot of people do that. They go, well, I'm going to. I saw somebody on the golf channel. I'm going to spend all winter doing it. And then you get outside and you're like, Wow, I didn't realize I was grooving the shank. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. Well, listen. Don't forget to subscribe to uh, Swing Thoughts on iTunes. If you leave us a, a comment or a rating at actually will make it more available for other people. Mike, I hope you had a good time. Loved it. Thanks. thanks did, did you really me. love it? Or you just I, I it? loved yeah. it. No, okay. no. It's, this is my face. This is my loving it face. This is your loving it face. Tim, I thought you did amazing, thanks. amazing work. And,
1: and, and Mike, you know, thanks for being a good friend of Mo Norman. You were one of his closest friends, and he, you supported him so much, and so uh, a lot of people in golf thank you for that.
0: Thanks. Thank I appreciate it. I, I just heard about it, so I'm not ready to thank you for it. Well, you can later. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I, you know what? I'll give you a mild, hey, way to go. Thank you. I have no idea what appreciate doing it. Uh, I know it was great having you on the show we'll see you next time